Welcome to the Political R&D Podcast. I'm Robbie Krieger-Smith. And I'm Deirdre Mitchell-McLean. We bring political analysis and commentary on events in Alberta and Canadian politics. We discuss policy and look for expert insights into topics relevant to government, policymakers, and issues that face voters. Hi, Deirdre. <laughs> this is episode three, and we are recording on March 24th, 2019. Today, we're discussing the winners and losers in week one of the Alberta election and the rage campaign so far. So the election was called on March the 19th, and what happened was an immediate launch into policies. The campaign started right away. And we're going to look at our favorite and least favorite announcements about policy from each of the parties. Let's start with uh, UCP. What did you love, Robbie? I like the UCP's plan that they announced to establish Big Island Provincial Park, which is on a tract of land southwest of Edmonton along the North Saskatchewan River. It basically runs from right around the Henday Ring Road in Edmonton to the city of Devon. And um, it's a fairly pristine piece of provincial property, I guess, at this point. Used quite a bit for recreation. I think it's um, a really good policy that makes a lot of sense. Okay. Um, the one that, one of the ones that I liked was ending MLA expenses for fuel and vehicle maintenance because the whole reason for the mileage rebate, it's actually supposed to include fuel and vehicle maintenance. So it's it's supposed to be all-encompassing, and the fact that they still have these additional perks, essentially on top of an expense that's already paid, is you know nice to see. <laughs> I, th- I see that we actually have the same one for what we uh, the policy that we hate. So I'll let you start. <laughs> yeah, the recall legislation for sitting MLAs. I know that especially when there's floor crossings or you have an MLA that takes an unpopular position on a policy, there this always seems to pop up in Alberta. In the history of the implementation of it, it hasn't been very successful. It winds up creating an additional bureaucracy to administer petitions and potential recall campaigns. And in my view, in a parliamentary democracy, we actually already have recall legislation. It's called elections. <laughs> So to me, it's just populist pandering. And I I think that the UCP is a little bit not too wise in proposing this because they seem to forget that it might also be applied to them should they form government. (laughs) Well, and that's, I mean, obviously that's always the case as well. And recall legislation, the reason that it's my least favorite is because this is actually the responsibility of the MLA, it's the responsibility of the party. When we look at the last year, MLAs that stepped down, Robin Luff was forced to sit as an independent. Prab Gill was forced to sit as an independent. These were party decisions. So if the party can say, I don't want you to be part of the caucus anymore, then they're effectively saying that they have that they have a veto 
on voters. So I don't really like that. But the other thing is, look at uh, look at Don McIntyre. Did the party wait? Did the MLA wait to be recalled? No, he stepped down. He got out because he knew that he was out anyway. In most cases, I think like uh, having an MLA make an unpopular decision. I agree. That's what we have elections for. That's what we have voter records for is to be able to look at someone's voting record in the legislature or in the House of Commons and say, this is what this person stands for. And whether that whether I agree with that or not, that's how I can make my decision. But exactly. It's it's costly. It's time consuming. It's the voter regret thing. Like, no, I mean, people voted You need to know what you're doing before you head to the ballot box, make your decision, and you might regret it. But I mean, that's, I don't know. It it just, it doesn't seem to me like it's a smart use of time. And if an MLA is that unpopular, then they should just step down. That's, I think, a personal accountability thing. You make a really good point there with respect to voters and remorse. And I I think there's an element of not taking the vote as seriously as well and not doing your homework and just thinking, you know what, it's fine. We can just put this person in. And if we don't like them, we'll just change them midterm. I think in terms of government continuity, in terms of having competent representation, it does a lot to set you back. So. Mm -hmm. No, agree. So on to the next one. Uh, What did you love about the NDP's policy announcements? Uh, So one announcement that stood out for me was a commitment to spend $100 million to help grow the artificial intelligence industry in Alberta. We know that recently Alberta, particularly the University of Alberta, has become a world leader in terms of artificial intelligence development and research. And this is definitely going to be an industry that is has the potential to put Alberta at the forefront of, I'll call it the new economy, the information economy. Um, Automation and AI are really kind of the future of industry worldwide. And we're recognized as a global leader. Uh, Google put their DeepMind lab in Edmonton. And so I think that if we're going to really capitalize on that and make sure that we maintain that position as one of the world leaders. We have to invest in it and now's the time to do it. So we really need to hit the gas on that industry and make sure that we entrench it and maintain that leadership position before somebody else takes it over. So I really appreciated that. Mm-hmm. And mine was the up, continuing to update education and make it relevant in the internet age. Uh, This is something that I remember talking with Luke Fevin about, and he's a programmer. And he said that 100% of eight-year-olds in Estonia, which isn't exactly known as the, you know, uh, technological future, but 8% of, or sorry, 100% of eight-year-olds in Estonia know how to code because mm-hmm. it's part of their education curriculum. Um, this is this is something that I feel, again, that we have not really put a lot of what does the future look like for our kids in Alberta or outside of Alberta. We need to make sure that our education is uh, as, as up-to-date as humanly possible. And one of those things is 
you know, making it ready for the internet age and making it relevant in the internet age. So that was one of my favorites. Yeah, no, I think that's going to be really important, whoever forms the next government, that the education system as a whole is going to require some retooling in order to be more adaptive and nimble and meet the needs of learners for the future economy. So um, mm-hmm. I agree that's an important one. What did you hate about the NDP's policy announcements so far? Uh, what I hated, and there's a number of reasons for this, creating the K-12 Filipino Language and Culture Program, and we kind of got into this a little bit in our in our pre-session discussion, where you were saying that there's already so many of these different programs available. There's French immersion, there's uh, Ukrainian, you've got a Ukrainian school. There's all of these, these specialized uh, programs available for one specific language or culture, and the thing that I was looking at is why do we not have a K-12 language and culture program? And I realize, again, this is a kind of a tall order, but I would like to see that inclusivity. I, I would like to see I would like to see my kids learning about and and of course this comes into things like like social studies, but if you can create an entire program for K-12 that really focuses on language and culture, why can't that be done in the public system where, you know, my kids are learning about all of these different cultures. We've got, you know, our own background is, you know, we've got Russian and German and English and Scottish and uh, there's, you know, some First Nations in there as well. Like, I, I just, I would like to see that inclusivity. I mean, there's a, a fairly broad spectrum of languages and cultures that are covered just that I know of within the public school district here in Edmonton. Um, there's Mandarin, there's Cantonese, I believe there's some East Indian language programs, uh, like a, you mentioned the Ukrainian one, there's an Islamic school, and they do all fall under the public school. Um, even even though they are private schools, they do fall within the public delivery kind of structure. Mm-hmm. And for me, like I grew up in BC until I was 12, I was in a bilingual school. And so we had curriculum in both English and French. But for me, French didn't really click until I spent a summer in Quebec in actual immersion. Mm -hmm. And so there are still some English language programs within this, but it, it basically takes the current program studies that exist within Alberta education and puts them into a fully immersive kind of program. And I think in terms of maintaining that kind of cultural diversity, it's important to do that. And you're not going to be able to do that necessarily on a broad scale where you're going to have one school that teaches 100 different languages or 20 different languages. Um, It just becomes a little too niche. And resource intensive to be able to do that. So targeting that into places where there's heavy concentrations of a particular ethnic group or or linguistic minority, to me, makes the most sense and then allow people to access it as they need. I would actually like to bring up again our geographical differences. Yep. So for you, you're looking at Edmonton. And yes, Edmonton has all of these amazing things. And that's fantastic in Edmonton. And in rural, 
I don't have anywhere near that number of options for no. my kids, right? So, and I guess that's maybe where where I'm taking that point of view is that they're not going to have these niche type schools in my area because we couldn't possibly satisfy the numbers. Yeah, totally. But uh, I mean, there definitely is a balancing act to be done. And if you look at, uh, well, as an example, I know it's not rural, but it is kind of urban. You do have places like Beaumont that have a really large French population. They do have bilingual and French immersion programs. Mm -hmm. um, a, a place like Morinville would be another example. There's a really large French population there. And if it's really, really important to you that your children have immersion in Spanish language, that would be probably something that would drive you to relocate or have your students be in a locale where that would be an option. But if you've got five students that in a city of 10,000 would perhaps want access to an immersive language program like that, are you really going to have the teachers and resources dedicated that can deliver that full curriculum from kindergarten to grade 12? Probably not. Mm -hmm. um, but it is an interesting conundrum because I, I lived in rural up until about four and a half years ago. I lived in Drayton Valley, Edson, Whitecourt, Hinton and Jasper for the first 18 years that I lived in Alberta. And even from a from a career and technology studies standpoint, the options that were available to us as students were not on the same level as they were in the urban centers. And mm -hmm. that's just a numbers game. Um, you have X number of students and X number of dollars, and it's definitely a challenge for rural school boards to even deliver core programming at this point um, with the kind of urbanization of Alberta and the movement of population and demographic trends. It's the sustainability of schools is really a challenge. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, maybe there's some technological solutions where you have an opportunity for students to be able to, whether it's through teleconferencing or Skype type of technology to be able to partake in those programs that are being delivered in an urban center, um, mm -hmm. but province-wide, obviously with the geographic challenges that we have, and again, the demographic shifts in rural areas, it becomes really challenging to be able to open those opportunities for people. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, I would fully agree with uh, giving kids the options because we do have, again, this is just moving education towards the internet age and using your resources to the best of your ability, which would which could be opening up access through things like uh, teleconferencing, where you can now offer better programming, more programming in these areas that really can't sustain them. So yeah, and definitely one of the challenges around that is still to this day rural connectivity yes. isn't where it needs to be as well. Um, we and also need internet. We do. And so I'm really hoping that that's something that one of the parties will bring into their election platform. Mm -hmm. So on and that what note, did you hate? for me, the thing that really kind of made me scratch my head a little bit with the NDP was their plan to balance the budget by 2023. <laughs> and it's not because I don't fundamentally agree with 
the importance of having a balanced budget, especially when we are in a period of economic growth. Mm -hmm. But their plan is just completely unrealistic. It's like they asked kindergartners to do a budget and they just pulled numbers out of a hat. In the last fiscal update that the NDP government and Finance Minister Joe Sisi released, they laid out for the first time a pathway to balance that ended in 2023. But in order to get there, they would have to increase non-renewable resource revenues by 120% or more. To do that in four years um, just seems kind of like hocus pocus. And then the other thing that I found really, really interesting is that the NDP has been viciously attacking the United Conservatives and the Alberta Party for proposing a period of fiscal restraint where spending didn't keep up with population plus inflation growth. Mm -hmm. And in order to get to balance, they actually proposed freezing the budget, a total freeze for three years. And Rachel Notley's line was, even a freeze is a painful cut. The Alberta party had proposed somewhere between 1% and 2% total growth in expenditures for government, which is, again, below the population and inflation growth. And they were quite critical of that. So now, in order for them to get to balance, they actually freeze whole of government spending for three years. That's actually more extreme than the Alberta party or than the UCP has proposed. So... You know, why wait another three years and do it then? Why not just do it now and save ourselves the interest costs? So it just, it wasn't grounded in reality. And unfortunately, like I said, it's hocus pocus and it's not realistic. And I think voters who look at those things critically aren't going to buy it because it definitely has no credibility for me. Well, that makes sense. And then we went to the Liberal Party. What did you love Uh, Their Indigenous policy, I thought it was really innovative. Alberta Liberal Party leader David Kahn is an Indigenous rights lawyer and constitutional lawyer. You can definitely tell that some of his passion and experience has come through in this policy. And the one that really stood out for me was adding six dedicated seats to ensure Indigenous representation in Alberta. Obviously, that's going to require some changes to the electoral boundaries or election structure. But I thought it was really an innovative proposal. I think that it was probably lifted somewhat from New Zealand that when they underwent electoral reform, they set aside a specific segment of seats that are dedicated to the Maori people. But it's a really good way to ensure that First Nations and Indigenous people are represented in policy discussions and in governance. And so for me, I'd love to see that happen. How about yourself? I like the reduction in wait times. One of the things that, I mean, it's very important in Alberta and in most provinces, people do not like to have the long wait times. Um, I'm not sure that they adequately addressed how to do that. Like the way that the way that I always see reduction in wait times is that we need to have more staff. We need to have more specialists. We need to be able to move through the testing process, diagnosing. All of this has to move faster in order to reduce wait times. So I'm not sure that that was adequately addressed in how, you know, and and the cost that's associated with that. Definitely. It's 
to me, it's less a platform plank and more a vision statement, which mm-hmm. is good, but definitely it's missing a little bit of meat in terms of how they get there and the execution of it for sure. What was the policy that you hated? This was this was hard because I love this policy and then I wasn't so sure about this policy was the uh, six indigenous seats. I love it because I agree um, that our our First Nations should be ensured to have a voice in the legislature. Um, but one of the things that I the, the first thing that I started to think about was, you know, why can't you know, why, why aren't they just part of other parties? And they are, but also, um, does it, is it a slippery slope of ensuring that, you know, as our, as our culture becomes more and more diverse, do we have to start setting aside seats for, you know, all of those individual cultural backgrounds? That was, and, and so I'm really unsure about that one because like I said I love it but what does that mean uh, is that is that something that should be done for everyone it's an interesting question that you ask but I, I think the thing that obviously is different in this case is that obviously the indigenous people were here first we haven't done a good job of rep respecting those treaties that allowed the settlement on mm-hmm. um, in Canada and so this is a way to help ensure that they do have some influence over the governance of the country. Whereas everybody that's come since that time, regardless of their cultural background, does represent, uh, you know, I'll use the word settler. Um, so you're just ensuring that it's more of an equal partnership between the two. Um, and so for that aspect, I definitely do get it. I see it, but I think mm-hmm. it's worthwhile doing um, just from a respect for the the treaty relationship and where that's been and taking steps to further reconciliation. So actually, and and in that in that light as well, it absolutely makes more sense to do it. And I guess, yeah, if you if you think about it as in terms of this is the way that it should be again because they were here first. So, yeah, like I said, I I love it and I don't want to see it. I don't want to see it ballooned into something strange afterwards. For sure. But I really did love it. Yeah. What was yeah. what was the one that you disliked? To be honest, with the liberal platform that they've announced so far, there's nothing that I particularly disagree with. My only comment is that I've always perceived the Liberal Party in Alberta to be very robust in terms of policy. Mm-hmm. And with what they've released so far, I'm not seeing that. It's kind of curious because um, it's fairly light in terms of volume and it's fairly light also in terms of substance. Whether that's a function of the large exodus of membership that came to the Alberta party after their last leadership race and their resources are perhaps a little bit strained. I know that lots of people went to the NDP, lots of people came to the Alberta party and it's left them with a little bit of a depleted membership base. And so just reading into it without having any sort of inside knowledge, um, whether that's the change of leadership or th- that exodus of membership, it just doesn't kind of live up to that standard that I've kind of always expected and seen from the Alberta Liberal Party. 
And I would agree with that. So what about the Alberta party? What did you love? So for me, the thing that I really loved was the Children First plan to expand access to affordable childcare. I was part of the team that wrote the first draft of this policy. We know that one of the biggest barriers to young families and even to starting a family is the cost of childcare. The NDP's program has been very, very targeted and it's been based on selecting daycares to host the program versus having a more broad-based program that targets children. So this is a really significant expansion of the NDP program to make sure it encompasses more families and that it has a broader impact on children across the province. Um, and it's a voucher-based program. So it'll actually, as a parent, if you have a kid, you get a voucher and then it gives you the freedom of choice to go pick the childcare that you're going to utilize for your child. And then it's also a little bit more indexed in terms of income. So a lot of parents in low income situations are actually gonna pay nothing or pay significantly less for their childcare than they do pay under the NDP's pilot. In my view, it's a very bold, it's very ambitious. It's going to improve participation in the labor market for parents. And at the end of the day, what it should do is it should create more opportunity for employment and give us a more adaptable and flexible labor market. So it's kind of win-win for business and for families. And you should see a return on investment in terms of more corporate taxes and more income taxes, which helps support our and expand our tax base. How about you? So the one that I loved was uh, exempting heating from the carbon tax. Um, that's something that, or like it's exempting homes and businesses and not-for-profits. The, the main issue with homes, of course, is your heating. And so I, I quite like it because, and this actually I did bring up on a podcast I did with Trevor too, where I said, you're supposed to have control over a, over something that's like, kind of a consumption tax. Now, granted, he said it's a behavior modification or it's meant for behavior modification instead. And that's fine. But in terms of turning on the heat in this climate, we just don't have the option of going without or necessarily turning it down so that we're not using as much. Uh, we had that nasty cold spell, which, you know, really people saw a jump. And this to me is something that as far as behavior goes, like I, I get it with with excess uh, driving, things like that, uh, more fuel efficient vehicles. These are things that that we can make choices to to change. Heating, I, I was never I, I understood the complaints around that. And so that was kind of, I guess, my favorite one. Uh, what was your least favorite? The fluoridation of water supply, the initial draft of this policy that I had seen would mandate fluoridation of water supplies for all municipalities over 10,000 people for political reasons, which obviously are a very important consideration. That policy was amended to be a consultation with municipalities but the evidence is really clear that when you remove fluoridation from 
public water, there is a direct correlation with a decline in dental health for children. Mm -hmm. And so in that case, it's one area that I would have liked to see the Alberta Party and leader Stephen Mandel be a little bit more assertive on and say this is going to be a requirement. It's a public health issue. I get why they did it, but I, I was looking for a little bit stronger stance and for it to be a little bit more directive versus having a dialogue about it. Okay. And I had I had a little bit of difficulty finding the one that I didn't like. So I ended up choosing the one that I have seen be the most controversial. And I it's not because I don't agree with mandatory vaccinations. I do agree with it because, I mean, I vaccinated my kids. I understand that's a choice. I thought it was necessary. Uh, it was necessary for you know my kids being around their grandmother and stuff as she was getting older. Like, vaccinations help keep other people healthy as well. But the thing that I didn't like about it is that a lot of people are asking questions about the particular policy. There is the the policy isn't set up in a way that I, I don't think there's enough information on it. People that are asking the questions, people that are saying, well, what about this? And, you know, what a what if what if they can't have them for medical reasons? I mean, I heard it when Stephen Mandel made the announcement. I heard him say it. I found it on the tape. Uh, I did find a little piece on the Alberta Party website. But I think for for as controversial as that uh, platform statement was that there should have been more information available immediately. Yeah, no, I think that's a fair criticism and definitely some of the details were lacking and it's certainly a challenge of an opposition party to do the research that's required to have some fully formed policy implementation processes. I agree with you. The things I would have liked to have seen said in that announcement is the option for flu vaccination because the efficacy of the flu vaccination isn't consistent year to year and it changes. Mm -hmm. um, and so for a lot of people, that one in particular is quite controversial. Right. But, you know, like the MMR vaccination, those are the kind of ones that to me are no brainers, but definitely having some more robust communication around exemptions and why it's important would have been beneficial. Mm -hmm. um, but it's definitely in the feedback that I've seen online and from parents just in the community, it's been fairly positive. So mm -hmm. um, overall, I, I have a feeling in Southern Alberta, uh, some of the more <laughs> so Southeast parts of the province. Like it where may I not live. play so well, like where you live. <laughs> um, but certainly in the urban areas, it's been pretty well received. Okay. And that, that again, just, just that, that geographical uh, difference between us where that's where I'm hearing it more. I'm having more people ask me questions and I mean, people come to me and ask me questions about these things anyways, because they're like, well, you pay attention. So when I can't find something, I it's it's very frustrating to me because I can usually find it. Right. Yeah. So that's and and exactly it could be because of where I am geographically. I'm hearing more of those questions. So, yeah. So the Freedom Conservative Party, your best friend, Derek Hildebrandt. <laughs> I see my best friend. <laughs> 
Well, you guys hang out. You text, right? Yes, yes, yeah. we hang out. My yeah. my favorite, um, and this actually had this this had a little bit less to do with what it entailed necessarily. But my favorite was his slogan of more Alberta, less Ottawa. I think that's going to be very helpful for him. I've heard great reviews, uh, even people that don't necessarily uh, support the party or support Derek personally. Uh, more, more, more Alberta, less Ottawa has been an absolute hit. I'm going to leave you to explain why you like that, because you actually like more control for the province. So I'll let you go with that. because <laughs> yes. mm-hmm. Yeah, so this is one where we agreed. Um, and the specific policy they talked about was demanding more control over immigration, taxation, employment insurance, CPP and justice. And these are areas that for the most part, the majority of the responsibility has fallen to the federal government. But it in a lot of ways, each of those areas do have different needs on a provincial scale. So for example, Quebec actually has a large degree of control over their immigration system. They determine where immigrants come from, what types of skills they're looking for, that type of stuff. And they they assign numbers based upon what their needs are. And it's allowed their economy to be a little bit more nimble and adaptive. In particular, in the last boom, it held back Alberta not having that flexibility and adaptability to be able to dictate some of what their needs were in terms of immigration. Um, And a good example of this is Saskatchewan actually has some individualized control over their numbers of immigration and what type of skills they allow into the province. And so I've worked with McDonald's restaurants for about 22 years before I got into politics. There was a lot of skilled temporary foreign workers who were working for the food service industry that actually wound up migrating to Saskatchewan from Alberta because that gave them a pathway to permanent residence and citizenship. And so at a time where Alberta was severely lacking in call them mid-level skilled positions in the food service and service industries, Saskatchewan had a competitive edge and it held us back from being able to fully realize the economic growth opportunities that we had when Alberta was really booming. There's quite a few bits of information in that piece of that Freedom Conservative Party plank that I think there's a lot of benefit to Alberta to having a little bit more autonomy over and I liked it. Okay and which (laughs) it looks like we both hate the same one too Uh, so we'll start with yours. Demand an end to equalization and wealth (laughs) transfers. Ideologically I get why Albertans are upset that it feels like the country isn't supporting us when we're going through to us what has been one of the most difficult economic periods of most of our lives. Um, But when you comparatively look at ourselves in terms of income per capita, in terms of GDP per capita, in terms of economic growth and total employment, we're still well ahead of other provinces. And so again, it's this populist pandering that we're you know, screaming our heads off because we don't have it that good. Well, we still have it a lot better than other provinces. Mm -hmm. And some of the 
things that factor into that though there there's some kernels or nuggets of the equalization and wealth transfers piece that i think we can do better on so for example quebec and manitoba artificially decrease their fiscal capacity because they have hydroelectric energy programs where they're selling their energy that's generated to their citizens at less than market prices. So because of that, their fiscal capacity is a little bit smaller, um, significantly smaller. And Alberta doesn't have the benefit of that with their non-renewable resource revenues. Okay, wait, I have to stop and ask a question there. Can you not say that we do the same thing in Alberta with our gas prices? Because why is it lower in Alberta than it is anywhere else in the country? Well, part of it is that we do have some refineries here and it does come from here. Um, Part of it is our tax regime um, and political decisions that we've made in terms of not having higher gas taxes, et cetera, et cetera. So those are certainly political decisions, but it's also a political decision for provinces in the Maritimes not to extract their natural resource reserves by banning fracking or by not proceeding with developing them. Um, And so that's the challenge with coming up with an equitable transfer system is that as a federal government, you are trying to provide similar levels of service across the country with the disparity of the types of economic activity and the political climates in each of the provinces, you don't actually have an apples to apples comparison. And so that's what makes equalization and the wealth transfers so complex, but they're enshrined in the constitution. It's not just as simple as Jason Kenney or Derek Fildebrand for that matter would have you believe that you have this referendum and then all of a sudden everything is better and Alberta has so much more money there's a real societal risk in my view in pushing that line because there's so many potential unintended consequences if you have to reopen the constitution to try and end equalization and wealth transfers do we then end our monarchy do we then start to have to give special concessions to Quebec? Because historically, I mean, I love Alberta, but they've been a little bit better at negotiating these things than we have. Mm-hmm. So what type of things are we prepared to give up? Religious education is a really, really kind of hot button topic in Alberta that is enshrined in our constitution. If we're opening up the constitution, do we then wind up having that taken away from Alberta? Me personally, I wouldn't really care if we did that. I would love to see one system, but a lot of people would be really upset if that was on the table and was something that was pulled out. It's reactionary and it's populist and it just doesn't think about what all the potential implications are of doing something that might trigger opening the constitution. And I just don't think that they've thought through the whole process and the potential pitfalls of doing that. Mm-hmm. I will, I will just agree. The end to equalization is, is just, it's not, it's not in our control. We pay federal taxes. The federal government decides what to do with, the money from the federal taxes, just like we pay provincial taxes, and the provincial government decides what to do with those taxes. It isn't as simple as we don't like it, therefore we're not going to pay it. That's not how it works. So 
again, same thing. It's just it. I, I get that people really like the narrative. They've tried to simplify it to a point where it makes sense, but that simplification is impossible. So I mean, when you try to give a simple answer to a complex problem, you wind <laughs> up with bad decision making and bad communication. I think that this is a really great example of that. And people haven't really explored all the potential outcomes. Maybe we need to find a constitutional expert and talk about, you know, what could go wrong. Because <laughs> oh, that's always fun. Yes. Yeah. We expect that there's going to be quite a few more policy announcements um, over the course of the next two and a half, three weeks now um, in the election period. Who would you say the winner was of the first week in your view? I don't really have a winner. Yeah, I don't really have a winner yet. And I don't really have a loser. Oh, I guess actually we sort of do have a loser because something amazing happened yesterday. That was uh, that the Freedom Conservative Party has beaten the Alberta Liberal Party in the polls. They are now polling at a higher level than the Alberta Liberals. So I might say that who's not doing nearly as well this week would be the Alberta Liberal Party. Yep, I would be inclined to agree with that. That's for sure. <laughs> um, that was big. <laughs> yeah, no, it was big for sure. I think in terms of from a policy and coverage perspective, the UCP and the Alberta party were definitely neck and neck. Um, I looked into the Google traffic for the main parties and the Alberta party actually historically has obviously significantly kind of performed under the other big two, mm -hmm. um, but they were actually exceeding the NDP and the UCP on a couple of days this week. Um, so it's interesting because it shows to me that people are exploring and looking at other options, but definitely Definitely the volume of the UCP and the, the coverage. There's no denying that they're running overall a really good campaign and that they're doing a lot to generate attention, um, both positive and negative, but I digress. So talking about <laughs> some of the strategic considerations and the rage that's gone on, Notley went really negative really early. Mm -hmm. What did you think about that? I have to admit that when the election was announced, I was I was fairly excited for all of I don't even think 20 minutes. It just <laughs> went down so fast and it could be because of the negativity. It was just it was immediate, right? Um and it was returned. And it just, you know, it really left me after the first couple of days just kind of like <sighs> really 26 more days of this. Like it was it was kind of overwhelming. I I think I knew it would happen, but it just, I, I guess, and too, because I'm so engaged. So, you know, this is, this is something that I would be doing anyways, but it was just, it was overwhelming. That's, that's, I, I kind of just kind of got depressed right away, like that we had to deal with this for this long. I think it definitely points to desperation on the part of the NDP and the fact that they're reading the polls and a path to a second term is very, very challenging for them. Mm -hmm. And I think there's an, when you go this negative, the intention isn't to convert 
UCP supporters into NDP supporters. It's to convert people who are maybe on the fence or aren't committed into staying home or not supporting them or maybe pushing them towards the Alberta party or towards um, the Freedom Conservative Party, who's a little bit more libertarian on some of the social issues. And having done so, so early in the campaign, either they've got some really good tools in the box still, (laughs) or they haven't really thought out the whole campaign process. Um, And when you look at the polling throughout the course of the week, it hasn't really had a significant impact on the UCP when Mm -hmm. you look at the aggregated polls. So I think it was a strategic miscalculation to do it and do it so early. Mm -hmm. The strategic decision-making, the candidates that the UCP are coming up with, I mean, they've now nominated 86 candidates. They, They removed a... They removed a white supremacist sympathizer with a with a guy who kind of comes out as uh, misogynist and homophobic as well. And it just sort of, you know, I think it I think it actually kind of shocked people that 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 was the replacement because you would kind of assume that it had to be better, right? Like, well, we can do better than that. Boom, done. And it was just so immediately not better. It like how 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 is that your best chance your best replacement? Well, I I think to a certain extent it shows what happens when you make decisions kind of reactively and on the fly, mm. um, and it didn't take them very long to put uh, the fellow's name is Jeremy Wong into the candidacy. I think the NDP what they've done is they've attacked the candidate for a statement that has come from a sermon. He is a pastor. Mm -hmm. And it's in the Bible. You know, the context of it is that basically women are supposed to submit to their husbands and that the kind of final decision in the household or the lead of the household should be a man. Mm -hmm. But in urban writings and in urban society, there seems to be a little bit of a departure from that perception or view, even within the religious community. Mm -hmm. But in the kind of more fundamental, more conservative churches, by attacking on this, I think it kind of entrenches those people into the UCP. The Mm -hmm. thing that I had more of a concern about was Jeremy Wong's alleged involvement with this organization called Living Waters. And they're a group that has allegedly administered a form of conversion therapy, which is basically where somebody who's identifying as having same-sex attraction or being gay is tried to, they try to counsel them into becoming straight and suppressing those, those attractions. It's a widely debunked procedure and Mm -hmm. psychiatrists psychologists say there's no value whatsoever in it it's not illegal in alberta right now right um and the ndp has struck a working group that if they get re-elected are going to examine the issue 
the Alberta Liberal Party has said that they would ban it immediately if they were to form government. Ha ha. Um, and I actually submitted a policy as well to the Alberta Party that I'm hoping will make it into their platform to ban it as well. So to me, that was the one that was a little bit more concerning. Um, not that misogyny is not important, but just specifically how they targeted the use of the Bible the Bible verses. I think that they run the risk of alienating some some religious followers and entrenching them with the UCP. The other thing that I found really, really interesting about the news story in Wong's response to the criticism of this Living Waters program is that he himself says he's taken part in the program. Right. So from their annual report in 2013, it says that it's for ministering to those facing sexual addiction, unwanted same-sex attraction, and relationship struggles. That's really curious to me, and I'm wondering if that's not a problem waiting to happen. And then again, just, you know, it, it really is from a psychologist, psychiatrist standpoint, it's it's mental abuse is what it is. It's a program that shouldn't have any place in Alberta, in my view. Mm-hmm. And the one thing, too, that just talking with some other people about the 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 bible verse and basically i guess i've got his yeah wives respect your husbands submit to your husbands husbands love your wives that was directly out of the clip and the one thing that i noticed as well is if it was if it was a different religion if it was a different person saying it on behalf of that religion, the same people who are really upset that that this is being called out would be the ones calling it out. It kind of highlighted again the differences between, you know, uh, religious acceptance. So, yeah. Mm. Well, imagine that the headline was Islamic imam preaches that women need to submit, submit to the men. The the screams of Shania Law has taken over yeah. Canada like, <laughs> would just be unbearable. So yeah, there's yeah. definitely some cognitive dissonance there. That wasn't the only bozo decision or bozo eruption that they had though. Did you see the press conference where they taped over the traffic sign? Yes, that was, I, I can't tell sometimes if they are strategic, let's make this the headline news instead of everything else that we can't actually account for. Like, is it is it strategic or is it just stupid? You, you kind of want, have to wonder with the volume of times, <laughs> the amount of times it's happened, like misspelling your own leader's name. Yes. Um, yeah, it, it was just really interesting. But if they're attempting to not be ridiculed online, they failed miserably. For those who don't know, there was a road sign that was in a shot that they were taking on one of their platform announcements that said 6.9 meters was the clearance for a bridge. Mm -hmm. And they were worried that they would face ridicule and sexual innuendo online. And so they taped it over to look like 8.9. So there's two things that are problematic here. Um, 89 is also a sexual innuendo that if you look it up on Urban Dictionary, you will have some new learning. And <laughs> the other piece is, what if a seven meter load had drove through during their press conference? <laughs> like it is a criminal offense to tamper with road signs. So yeah, um, yeah not 
the finest work of the communication staff in the UCP, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. that was just off. Another one for me was the Alberta party. So really strong week in my view in terms of policy announcements really focused on families and children but there's this bizarre photo that's come out of alberta party leader stephen mandel in a daycare and he's got this toy on his head (laughs) and there's this picture of it and it's going to haunt him for the rest of his days (laughs) but i had people messaging and being like does like does he have a horn on his head did somebody hit him in the head with a mic boom like so I'll put that out on our Twitter. You can go check out the Twitter, but it's um it's a pretty interesting picture. And um, I think what was happening was he was goofing around with the kids and trying to have some fun with them. Mm-hmm. So from that aspect, you know, it certainly humanizes him a little bit and puts them on their level. Um, but but unfortunately, there are no children in the shot. Well, and it's the type of thing that for me as a communications person gives me nightmares because you know that those pictures are going to wind up everywhere. That being said, I've got pictures like that of Jason Kenney at his uh, coronation at the PC leadership as well, where um, he he looks as excited as Hillary Clinton does about balloons. So. Okay, <laughs> I didn't see anything negative really coming out of the Alberta party this week? Yeah, I don't think you're going to see a lot. Um, having, again, you know, been a part of the team that was working on the writing of the platform and the campaign strategy, they're really, really, really going to focus on ideas. They've mm-hmm. got a very robust set of announcements. We're talking more than enough to have one per day. And it's all going to be focused on ideas and vision and policy not at all focused on attacking the opponents, not at all focused on trying to bring other people down, but really focused on just laying out what their vision is for the future of the province. I did see a press conference where leader Mandel was asked to weigh in on some of the controversy around the Kamikaze campaign and all that. And he said, you know what, there's other people that are dealing with that. We're going to let the UCP and the NDP fight it out, but that's not for us to weigh into or be a part of. We're just going to focus on us. And I thought that that was really good. The unfortunate piece is that as much as Albertans say that they want that and voters say that they want that, it's not (laughs) reflecting in the polls. So that's, that's true. That's true. Yeah. And so the liberal party, I 100% get why you you want you want every leader to basically be saying i'm running to be premier i am running to win if if they're not saying that then why bother but david Kahn came out and said that that their polling tells them that they could win that they could form government there's being confident there's having a vision there is there's having even a goal but think you want to play on your strength and I don't see trying to make we could form government a thing I I don't see doing that as being something that people can grasp onto for me the thing Mm. that's really interesting is as of today they have 51 nominated candidates I can't think of many parties that have wound up electing more than 80% of their nominated candidate. You know, Except cert- those well, who the had PC government. dynasties, of right. course. Yeah. <laughs> but when you don't even have a full slate, the Alberta Independence Party is running five more candidates than the Alberta Liberals are. Right. I 
just not so sure that going out there and claiming you're running to be the next premier is going to establish credibility. Mm-hmm. No, I think I think that's like it just gives me a it just it's cringy, yeah. right? It's just kind of like, oh, are you really going to go with that? Well, it, it's one of the things that I heard a lot about the Alberta Party when I first became involved as a volunteer after the last election is people would say, well, we really wanted to vote for you. We liked your ideas, but you only had 36 candidates. So even right. if we elected every single candidate, you wouldn't form government, right? And mm-hmm. so so I think that it's really important to have, at l- if not a full slate, close to, so mm-hmm. that you can credibly say we're in a position where we could form government. Right, because that is something that, that is definitely something that people look for. They they don't tend to vote with an idea or sorry, with an intention to elect opposition, right? They're really focused on who they're electing for government. Yeah. So, so yeah, I, I agree. I think that was, I think that was the biggest, uh, the biggest strategic meltdown uh, that I saw this week. <laughs> totally. Looking into your crystal ball. What do you see this week? Oh, I'm sitting on so much stuff, Robbie. I oh, have <laughs> people talk to me. Um, a lot of people talk to me, and there are, I think, I think over the next week, two weeks max, we are going to start seeing a lot more about the RCMP investigations because there's more going on than what has than what's what I've seen in media, and so I'm I'm hearing snippets, but. Uh, I put a bunch of snippets together after like a, a Friday of a bunch of different conversations that I had with people I don't normally have regular conversations with. They're, they're UCP members or supporters, uh, people who are kind of tight or know people who are in it. And stuff is stuff is going down and it's going down in a really, really big way. So I'm expecting I am expecting that to start getting out soon. Um, I'm waiting on some feedback to find out what I can say, even because I I really don't know. But yeah, well, I'm sitting on some good stuff, and I can't tell you anymore in the until I find it. I need to make sure I can't you know get in trouble. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, so I've had some contact with people from other parties and um, we'll call them new media as well. Mm-hmm. And I know that there's going to be more information that is going to be released on the Kamikaze campaign. I do also know that there's been some quite extensive opposition research that is going to drop in the next seven to 10 days on the United Conservative Party and their candidates and their connection to the pro-life movement. So you'll see some of that. Mm. Um, so yeah, it's going to going to be an interesting next seven to 10 days. And my prediction is it's going to continue to be very, very dirty. I mean, I don't really see how they can get around that in certain ways because also strategically, I mean, some, some good things this week, even though... Notley went very negative. Uh, some of the good things is that I think both the UCP and the NDP have carved out a good narrative for both of them, meaning that the UCP is going to focus on the economy and they are trying their best to throw social issues on 
you know, under rocks so that nobody's looking and nobody's asking any questions. Um, the NDP, they're, they're trying to push that as hard as they can. And so this choose your Alberta thing, I think was very good strategically for those two parties because they have very different. And I don't even know if I can say that Jason Kenney has a vision so much as a, I mean, when he describes Alberta, it's depressing. Well, it's Alberta from (laughs) circa 1997. Life was good then, right? Well, okay, that part is good, you know, bringing back the good old times. But I mean, when he was giving his, his, when he gave his campaign speech in Leduc, you know, it was just how awful everything was in Alberta. It was just constant, uh, it was destitution. It was, I've got it here, actually. I took notes at the time and I was just like, you know, that didn't help me to not be depressed afterwards but you know debt has quadrupled and and major pipelines killed 183,000 Albertans out of work 43,000 jobs lost in the last month unemployment up seven out of the last nine months Calgary's got the highest unemployment rate bankruptcies insolvencies uh we went from 14th to 43rd best place to invest for oil and gas Albertans are poor businesses are barely hanging on worst economic records since the great depression this was part of his campaign launch. Yeah. Like, it well, was awful. If you give the NDP credit for doing anything right, you see <laughs> any sort of ground, then fear then isn't going to motivate people to come vote, right? That's right. And But it was just, wow. You know, like I said, it was... Um, but it was... it It helps for those two parties to say... This is what you're going to get with the other guy. This is what you're going to get with us kind of thing. Um, So I think strategically trying to keep the conversation about the NDP and the UCP was fairly successful this week. Uh, I, I I think they framed it in such a way that, well, I was on the doors this weekend. It is scaring people. And I don't know if it's scaring people because I'm in a conservative riding. I don't know that it is scaring people to the UCP because I was getting, I was hearing people saying uh, you know, that they're, they're very concerned about Jason Kenney and they're very concerned about social conservative views uh, that being leaked into or leaking out of government. So that was really interesting because uh, Strathmore isn't necessarily considered a a progressive, you know, area, but uh, but that's what that was something that I was hearing at the doors. So interesting. I look forward is. to doing some door knocking this week and hearing what people have to say. Yeah, because it it really gives you it really gives you an idea of what's of what people are thinking. And I was like I said, I was surprised because I thought that that the support would just be automatically more natural. Um, that, but I, I heard people at the door. So, so again, strategically something the NDP is doing in the last week, which is really attacking Kenny on those social issues. Uh, I, I've seen people say, oh, no one really cares. People care. There are people who care. One, Mm -hmm. one, one family at the door said that they grew up in a socially conservative, you know, home, household, things like that. They had their they built their own life and they were social conservatives as they put it, they were social conservatives until, or while they had the luxury that it didn't affect them. 
So I don't know exactly what happened that started to affect them, but everything changed for them. And so she, she said, she said, we're, we're still conservatives, but this scares me. So, you know, they, they are reaching, uh, they are reaching some people. It's, it's anyone's say what, what's going to happen because I also ran into someone else who said that they hadn't worked in 18 months and, but they just, they just got on this new project and they are, uh, I believe they're the electrical engineer for 10 solar power farms from here down to the South. And there was no way they were voting NDP. And I was just kind of like, hmm, interesting. Yeah. You know, like, especially where, considering <laughs> like Kenny's promise to pull Get all those projects. Rid of that? Yeah. yeah. Actually, they weren't, they weren't voting for Kenny either. They okay. were, they were Phil Durant supporters. Gotcha. Yeah. But I mean, but it's, it's just interesting to hear people say like, this is, this is why, or this is what I think. I, I had someone at the door say, I don't mind the carbon tax. We need to clean, clean things up. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So being on the doors is, is really informative when people tell you what their top issues are and especially when they tell you what they're not unhappy about. So that's always, it, it is, it is a fine experience. I highly recommend that you contact the candidate that you would like to help out and get on the doors and find out what people are saying. For sure. Mm-hmm. Well, it's going to be an interesting week ahead for sure. Mm-hmm. And we'll have lots to talk about next week. Yes. If we make it that long. That's right. <laughs> All right. Thanks for joining us today. This has been the political R and D podcast with Robbie Krieger Smith. And Deirdre Mitchell McLean. Deirdre, where can people find you online? They can find me on Twitter at Mitchell underscore AB. And you can find me online at RKS Alberta. The Political R&D Podcast can be found on Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, Pocket Cast, and Stitcher. And you can also find Political R&D on Twitter at Political R-N-D. Goodbye, Robbie. Goodbye, Deirdre.